Support for Charlotte Readers Podcast is provided by Park Road Books, the oldest and only independent bookstore in Charlotte, and by Charlotte Mecklenburg Library, a connector of readers, leaders, and learners with 20 locations and a 24-hour online presence. Support is also provided by members like you, and for that, we offer our gratitude along with some awesome member-only content. You can find out more about these member benefits at charlottereaderspodcast.com. Welcome to Charlotte Readers Podcast, where authors give voice to their written words. This is the show where we meet local and regional authors, and sometimes even farther afield with the magic of remote podcasting, and we hear them read their work. We are a proud member of the Queen City Podcast Network, a uh, collection of Charlotte podcasts produced in and centering around the Queen City, and also a proud member of Authors on the Air Global Radio Network, broadcasting radio shows and podcasts about authors to a worldwide audience. I'm Landis Wade, the producer and host of this podcast. I'm a recovering trial lawyer. I'm the author of a trilogy of books where lawyers save Christmas, kind of a cross between My Cousin Vinny and Miracle on 34th Street, and I write stories, and I love books, and I love dogs, and I love beaches and mountains and fly fishing and sports and reading and more. And I'm excited about today's episode, so let's get to it. In today's episode, we meet Kevin Winchester, winner of the 2013 Thomas Wolfe Fiction Prize and writing instructor at Wingate University, and we dive into his novel Sunflower Dog, published by SFK Press. This book is an exploration of the many layers of life in a small North Carolina town as residents try to find their place in the neo-Gothic South. New York Times bestselling author Ron Rash compares Sunflower Dog to John Kennedy Toole's masterpiece, The Confederacy of Dunces, saying it's a delightful novel by one of North Carolina's best writers. We start the show at a good place, the beginning, with Kevin reading from the opening chapter, Take the Next Left to Salvation. When Salvador Henson rounded the corner, he saw two men in matching suits, obviously employees of the funeral home, trying to restrain Bill's wife. It was a struggle. Jolene was an ample woman. She bobbed between them, flailing her arms like a kid in a schoolyard fight. One swing connected with the usher on the right, and when he stumbled, she lunged for the opening, throwing a roundhouse right at the equally ample female the men were separating her from. An unidentified arm shot from the knot of relatives behind Jolene, grabbing the back of her dress and slowing her, allowing the usher to regrip. Sally's first thought was to keep walking, sneak up the steps, and avoid the whole mess but the sight of the other woman dodging Jolene's fist made him pause. Two more ushers stood between the second woman and Bill's wife, not physically holding her, but feebly stretching their arms wide as if to corral her. She looked to be about the same height as Jolene, a little heavier maybe. She wore a matching outfit with the word juicy stenciled across her ass in block blue letters. As he moved closer, Sally could see her jabbing a finger toward Bill's wife. A few more steps and Sally heard her yelling, Sinner and heathen! with each thrust of her finger, which only caused Jolene to swing harder and wilder, the blows from her thick forearms pummeling the two ushers as she screamed, You killed my Billy! It was you! A fat baby in a wispy, bleached blonde's arm started squalling. Finally, the usher who took one to the ear took another across the mouth and stepped up his efforts. He managed to push Bill's wife backward and yelled, Everybody shut up! This is a solemn occasion, damn it! The man's dead, for God's sake! Everything stopped. The paws hung in Sally's gut, like that moment of weightlessness when you're on a rope swing. Instead of bolting up the steps, he froze, and that was it. Caught. Bill's wife yelled, Salvador Henson, get your greedy ass over here. And the sensation of falling rushed over him. The crowd turned as one to look at him, and his moment of escape vanished. Hey, listeners, before we dive into the interview here, I'd like to uh, thank you for taking some of your valuable time to listen to this episode today. We really appreciate it. Uh, I'd also like to let you know about a couple of benefits available to our listeners. If you sign up for our email list at our website, charlottereaderspodcast.com, we will send you uh, a free ebook, the first book in my Christmas courtroom trilogy. We promise not to spam you. That just takes way too much time. We just provide a bi-weekly newsletter to let uh, listeners know what's coming and uh, allow you to engage with the show. Also, show notes of this episode with images, links, and information about the authors are available at charlottereaderspodcast.com. And finally, if you'd like to support your uh, favorite local independent bookstore and get audiobooks at the same time, 
Uh, you can join Libro.fm. That's L-I-B-R-O.fm. And if you use the promo code Charlotte Reader, that's all one word. You may not be from Charlotte, but you can still be a Charlotte Reader to get this benefit. When you use that promo code, you're going to get uh, two books for the price of one when you join at uh, Libro's $14.99 monthly membership level. This is a great way to support uh, your local independent bookstore and get uh, great audiobooks uh, at the same time. So check it out. And now, here's a little bit more about the author, followed by our conversation, more readings, and our writing life discussion. I hope you enjoy Kevin Winchester holds an MFA from Queens University. His story, Waiting on Something to Happen, won the 2013 Thomas Wolfe Fiction Prize. Other works have appeared in Tin House, Gulf Coast, Barron Magazine, Story South, Barrel House, Dead Mule, and the anthologies Everybody But the Baby and Making Notes, Music of the Carolinas. His short story collection, Everybody's Gotta Eat, was published in 2009. He currently teaches writing at Wingate University. When he's not writing, teaching, playing in the band Flatland Tourists, or hanging with his family, he's hiking, riding his Harley, or working in his garden. Kevin, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Lance. It's great to be here. Yeah, so this is a this is a fun book. I had a great time going through it. Uh, I just get you know it's like one one catastrophe after another uh, with with these uh, characters here. Um, we're going to meet this cast of crazy characters throughout this episode today. Uh, but before we talk about them, I'd like to talk about the crazy mind that comes up with this stuff, <laughs> and that would be you, Kevin. Uh, so it says, you know, in, in your little bio here. In addition to being a writer. You're a teacher, a Harley rider, a band member, and a gardener. So let's let's break that down. Let's start <laughs> start, start with teaching. Okay. I uh, yeah, teaching is sort of a um, uh, a late career for me, and uh, it was not something that I you know a lot of people say I've wanted to be a teacher all my life. I, I sort of just stumbled my way into it by accident. Um, I went to Wingate University when it was Wingate College and was self employed. Uh, this was years later, and uh, they had a, a late opening and needed an adjunct English professor, uh, somebody to teach a couple of writing classes. So they called me because they knew uh, Bob Doak, the department head at the time, knew that I was self-employed and had some flexibility in my schedule. And I, I turned him down several times and said, I, I you know, I'm, I don't think I'm cut out for teaching. And um Finally, I, I, I felt bad. So I said, yeah, OK. Uh, they'd set me up. They had the syllabus textbooks, uh, put me with a mentor, said, just get us through this semester. So I went in and taught and loved it. Uh, by the end of the semester, I was already starting the process of selling my, my business uh, and getting out of that. And I've been teaching ever since. Uh, hmm. So it's, it's a lot of fun. So what did you have to discover about yourself to realize that you were cut out for teaching? <laughs> Uh, I, I mean, over the years, I've always done teaching like things, I guess. You know, I used to coach, uh, I coached baseball years ago, uh, AAU baseball, rec league baseball. So I've always liked working with young people and it, 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 that exchange, there's a certain energy that you get being around young people. And, and, uh, I like that. Uh, plus, I always liked writing. It was uh, writing and literature, obviously, and everything that went with it. So uh, seeing that opportunity to see young students come in and, and uh, you know, progress, that was that was the thing that sort of drew me to it. And I thought, oh, OK, I'm, I'm having some effect. So for for the first time, I really felt like I was doing something that had some some real meaning and some real impact on other people's lives. So. Mm. So what do the students uh, when you think about uh, their English teacher that, <laughs> that, that rides a Harley? <laughs> uh, and that's, that's, uh, that's interesting. Uh, they, uh, most of them figure it out pretty quickly. You know, I, uh, I, I guess I'm not, I'm, I'm not quite the same as, as a lot of the other faculty. Yeah. So um, they'll, they'll notice my building, I, my office is, is I park very close to my building usually. So, you know, they'll come by and they'll say, who's Harley Davidson is that out there? Winchester, have you seen that? I'm like, yes, yeah, mine. <laughs> so, so then it's like, what, really? Yeah, um, that's great. So, uh, all right. So let's talk band member a second. You play in a band. Right. What, what, what's your instrument? Uh, in the Flatland Tourist, I play bass guitar. Uh, that's, that's kind of my go-to. That's what I've, I've always done. I mean, I played guitar and mandolin a little bit, but, uh, uh, I, I write music on the guitar, but I'm the bass player for them. I write most of the songs with them. 
Now, did you say flat land? Is that right? Flatland tourist? Because I'm, I'm thinking about your book title here, Sunflower Dog Dancing the Flat Head. <laughs> it's not the flat land shuffle. It's the flat head no. shuffle. Yeah. Yep. What, what is the flat head shuffle anyway? Uh, the flat head shuffle comes from a, uh, a particular scene in the, um, in, in the latter part of the book. And one of the characters, Ethel, that we'll meet in, in just a bit. Yeah. Uh, I love Ethel. Ethel uh, yeah. She's a lot of fun. Ethel makes this comment where she's, she's a, a very astute observer of life. And she always seems to have these one liners to cover what's happening. So it's uh, there's a bit of a scramble going on, and she calls it a a, a shuffle, you know, like a dance. It's an old, uh, you know, a country shuffle is an old kind of rhythm that you would have a particular dance to it. And the flathead comes from um, uh, a term that was used to describe the they were the Wasaki Indians, uh, Waxhaw Indians uh, later on, and they were called flatheads because uh, the the locals referred to them that way because they had they believed that a wide high flat forehead was a sign of um of of culture and high society so uh when their infants were born they would take river rocks and and as uh, the infants slept they would lay the rocks on their foreheads to flatten them out so they had that appearance so uh, that kind of plays into the novel as well yeah while we're on the cover here i'm looking at it uh, they can't see it they'll see it in the show notes they'll see it when they buy the book it's uh, got a nice green color but a little yellow Jumping off the page, sunflower dog uh, dancing the flathead shuffle. Um, you don't reveal, you know, much. And then there's a skull on the cover too. Yeah. <laughs> all, all this plays into the plot, right? And you right. told me you, you kind of had to argue for this uh, cover, right? You know, so uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, just you know, it, it works if you read the book. You know, for the folks that read all the way through it, it's a little bit of an aha moment uh, right. where <laughs> because the skull seems to to stick out. <laughs> And doesn't have a whole lot of meaning, but there's, you know, in the middle of everything else, there's sort of a voodoo thread that runs in one of the little subplots. And so it fits there and then, then everything comes together and it makes sense. I think uh, by yeah. the time you get to get it, towards it the does. end of the book. When I got to the end, I go, oh, now I know what, why, why that's why that's there. Uh, okay. So the last thing I left out was gardener. And I just, I'm curious, um, does your affinity for plants and flowers, does that have anything to do with the fact that, uh, you know, at the center of this book, at the at this plot, one of the plots that you've developed here, there is a flower. I mean, are you? It, it does. Yeah, it, it's um, it, it, the whole gardening thing was not. Well, I've come back to it, I guess, by choice. I grew up uh, in not large farming community, uh, but my family always had a large garden. Uh, so, so I was always around that. Um, and I grew up with that. There was that period of time where I didn't like it. Like everybody else, I wanted to get away from it. I mean, if I had to carry one more five gallon bucket of water for <laughs> tomato plants, uh, you know, I'm like, I've had it. Um, but I kind of came back around to that as I got past those teenage years. And, and I've always been interested in that sort of thing of, uh, uh, just, just plants in general. And the, the sunflower, the way that came about is, is uh, unique. When I was a kid, uh, my parents lived in Waxhaw, and we would go to their, uh, go to visit them. A lot of times, Sunday afternoon thing, take a Sunday afternoon drive, end up at the grandparents. Uh, we went down Highway 75, which is in the book. And on Highway 75, I was always fascinated because they had signs even then that said, do not mow on the, on the shoulders. And I had no idea why. Um, so the idea of being around gardens and plants and everything else, I, uh, I, I, I sort of, when I was putting the book together, I needed, I had parts of it for, for a couple of years and couldn't seem to pull everything together. And then I stumbled across the information about the sunflowers, the Schweinitz sunflower, which grows in Union County. Um, and that was what the signs were for. It was a rare and endangered species and they wanted to protect it. So naturally I was fascinated, had to start doing all the research to find out about that. And, and that's kind of what led to it. I'm like, oh, this is perfect. It ties everything together. Yeah. And that was sort of a, I wonder what if uh, we did this with that and that kind of thing, right? <laughs> when it comes to being a writer. Yeah. And yeah. so, you know, we didn't say there is th th this, uh, the sunflower does have a part in the story. Um, we're not going to get into all the details of that because, you, you know, you want to read the book to find out exactly why. But uh, you've got uh, mostly it's not as much about plot, probably, as it is about character. Yeah. Right. I mean, you just got a, 
a whole host <laughs> host of characters here, and we and, and but before we talk about them, we're going to go into those characters, uh, starting to, with Salvador Sally Henson in the opening read. But uh, you said something in your author notes I read about how sort of traditional tropes in Southern literature are disappearing; they're being replaced by a sort of capitalistic, you know, vieweristic shallowness, which you go on to say is kind of steeped in narcissistic greed and that the modern day Southerner is kind of struggling to find balance. And yeah. so I, I guess what I'm trying to figure out, what were you trying to do with this book to find that balance? Well, I think my hope was uh, for each of these characters. Um, I, I don't know that, I don't know that all of them find that balance, but what I really hoped uh, to achieve was to show that they are still looking for that balance. And I think that's the most important thing, because if you once you get to a certain position, uh, stasis sets in if you accept that. Um, so I wanted to have characters. I mean, the South has always had these colorful colorful kind of characters that that you know we set them out on the front porch as the saying goes right throw up your hand um, yeah uh, exactly but but i wanted to show characters that that had some even with with all their faults uh had some redeeming qualities and that they really wanted to be the best that they could be and and to hold on to that thing i think um it's sally's story uh even though a lot of people seem to identify with, with some of the other characters a little more. Um, and it's because Sally is sort of an unlikable narrator and, and his perspective, he's the one that seems to struggle the most. And what I really want to show is that there has to be a balance between all of the things that go into, uh, you know, that make up Southerness. And especially now, you know, the current times, you you look at how things are changing so rapidly. And I think that's good. I think there are things that need to change and, and need to move forward. Um, so Sally is, we see him really, and I think most of these characters, we see them really trying to um, dissect all that they are uh, as far as their community and, and their surroundings and their history and to pick out the better part. So, so whether they find the balance or not, I don't know. Uh, but I think, uh, and I hope that at the end we see them looking for those better parts of themselves. Yeah. Because Salvador, Sally, I like that Sally, <laughs> hence Henson, he's uh you start out and, and there's a little hint here, right? In the read that you get, Salvador Henson, get your greedy ass over here. So right away, why is he greedy? What's what's he greedy about? And we find out early on in the book that he was in business with uh, Bill, who's died. And, and, right. and of course, these women are fighting about that because one of the women might have slept with Bill and the other one's not happy about it, all that kind of thing. So that's just the inciting incident to get us yeah. going. But But Sally is trying to figure out, okay, you know, since he was a partner of Bill, uh, what did Bill leave behind for him? You know, and yeah. and and Bill kind of mysteriously leaves something to Sally, but doesn't give him all the clues as to yeah. how to find what it is that he left. So he's kind of on this uh, capitalistic uh, venture here to figure out how to make a buck, right? And right. maybe that's why you don't like him quite so much uh, right. early, early in the book. Uh, but before we um, before we go further with the characters, just a little bit about the setting because I, I kind of you know, recognize some of the area. I mean, you changed the names a little bit, but uh, it's, it's kind of backyard, right? It is. Uh, it's very much so. Um, um, the, the area is called Mason, which is a very, I want to say loosely based on Union County, the Charlotte area. Uh, yeah. it, it's there. And there are several references that I didn't change uh, that uh, some of the landmarks and, and some of the pieces, especially around Monroe and Union County, which in, in my mind um, for having a picture in, and I have to do that. I have to see things in my mind in order to write. Uh, I needed that concreteness of setting. So I just, I relied on that. And a lot of the pieces sort of fit, uh, thematically, uh, this area has changed. Union County has changed a lot in my lifetime, uh, uh, becoming a bedroom community for Charlotte. And then once 485 opened up, everything on the Western side of the County, uh, exploded. And there were people who made a lot of money off of that. And I saw, what had been what I remembered from from 
uh, childhood and growing up, uh, large family farms, large tracts of lands were uh, land were eventually sold off. Uh, so a lot of people made money off of that. And it wasn't always the family who owned the land that made the money. <laughs> and, right. and Salvador is kind of one of those guys. But um, he does. And that's that ties into our, our you know, the last comments about uh, uh, the balance is he's not sure because he is a several generations Southerner. And he's not sure that's part of the balance he's trying to find, chasing the dollar versus, uh, you know, some allegiance to the land and the area and the culture that goes through that. And he's torn between those two. Yeah, well, often, uh, you know, as you interview many authors, um, you learn things about the craft of writing. And I've now found myself looking for how characters change when I read a book, you know, (laughs) and, uh, you know, they all change a little bit. And uh it's kind of interesting to see how that happens. Uh, all right, let's talk about a guy named Livingston Carr because uh, <laughs> Livingston Carr is one of these fellows that uh, he's got a he's nervous about everything, and uh, he he starts out. You start out by introducing us to you know where he works, and which is kind of funny. And uh, you've got a little read here about Livingston. Livingston's dad is one of those guys. He's you have this little scene. He's on the beach. He's got the headset on. He's looking for valuables. Probably somebody's dropped a ring or something in the sand. So he doesn't hear this plane that's sputtering, that's run, running on uh, empty, and it just mows him down. And so he <laughs> he dies and leaves leaves this tract of land to Livingston. Um, and so Livingston really didn't know what to do with it. And so he's the landowner, and he doesn't know it's valuable. He doesn't know there's anything that could be of value there. But give us uh, let's let's do this reading here with Livingston. I think it kind of will tell just from the reading itself will give us a little flavor for who this fellow is. All right. When something challenged Livingston, he silently repeated his life's mantra, honest, stable, dependable, loyal. He even developed a series of tics, twitches, habits, and rituals to remind him of the mantra when he faltered. His boss at the Orangutan Condom Company appreciated that about Livingston, especially the loyal part. He focused on it as he waited for Livingston to appear in his office. Liv, come in, have a seat. Thank you, Mr. Arnold. Livingston took a seat. Listen. You're a valued employee, a straight shooter, so I'm just going to get straight to it. Yes. We got to let you go. Nothing personal. We're cutting nine others. This damn economy, nobody wants to fuck when their house is being foreclosed. You know what I'm saying? Nobody but kids anyways, and hell, most of them don't wear rubbers. Then you get more bastard youngins, more sucking the government tit, more drain on the economy, more layoffs. It's a vicious cycle, I tell you. I hate to start your new year off this way. Corporate wanted it done before Christmas, but hell, we've been fighting this shit nearly two years. I told him we'd wait until after the holidays. Appreciate you working the overtime last week to finish up the year in inventory, by the way. But uh, effective when? All the security's cleaning your desk out right now. It's today, buddy. Sorry about that. Well, I guess. Is there a severance? What about my retirement? I've been contributing for all my 22 years here. Here's your last check, and you need to sign this. Livingston signed it and slid the paper back toward Mr. Arnold. What is it, he asked. About that retirement, he waved the signed paper in the air. This here is a confidentiality agreement you signed. So what I'm about to tell you, you can't tell anyone. Capiche? I know a man like you would never think of such a thing, right? Uh, Okay, I guess. Our retirement fund, all of it, every freaking cent was invested with Bernie Madoff. That shit's gone. It's like Elvis Livingston. It ain't ever coming back. But what am I? The door opened and two security guards entered. One of them carried a small box of personal items from Livingston's desk, and the other gave Arnold a thumbs up. Good to go, he said. Arnold nodded and stood. Well, Livingston, it's been a pleasure working with you. Joe and Bobby here will walk you to your car. Let's see. He shuffled the papers on his desk. Yeah, here it is. All your paperwork. Livingston stared at the manila envelope in his hands. Oh, I almost forgot. He reached in the credenza behind his desk and tossed a box of orangutan brain condoms on the desk. Corporate said to give everyone a box when they left. Livingston picked up the box and read the slogan, Orangutan brand, for those times when only wild monkey sex will do. How could he tell Trudy? Okay. Uh, I'm just imagining that this was one of your fun days of writing. Yeah. 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 And, and, you know, when you're writing these different characters and you find, you know, I don't know if you use an outline or not, but, uh, even if you did, some of this probably wasn't in the original outline. It just kind of took on a life of its own, right? Yeah, um, I, I can't. Uh, I, I cannot write with an outline. <laughs> it's um, it, it's one of my my 
beta readers, uh, Amy Odom, she's a director of the library and, and she reads everything that I write. And she, she's just infuriated. She says, you have to have an outline. You have to have an outline. And I, I can't do it. But, but Livingston is a good example of why, um, he surprised me when I, I would write him and I'd have a live section. And the fun thing about it was I never really knew what he was going to do. I knew him as a character. So when I would write those pieces, I really just let him react to whatever was going on around him. And just, you know, I had a lot of freedom in that. Uh, yeah. So it was fun. It was, he was really a fun character to write. Yeah. Yeah, and you and you made it fun because you know he's got these quirks as you read on about him. He's he he wants everything to be lined up just so that you know there's a certain dinner that's served on Thursday night, and and then there's only sex on Sunday morning. And he gets home after all this, and his wife is serving something different, and she wants to have sex that night. His and and he's got these orangutan. His life is just totally turned upside down, you know. Nope. <laughs> and that's that's when he starts thinking. I wonder if I should. Uh, maybe look into selling that piece of land I've got, you know, don't know what it's worth, but since I, I don't have any money, maybe I should start investigating that. So you got all these characters that are going to start meeting, you know, at a certain point, even though they're starting at different places. Right. Yeah, exactly. It's, yeah. it's, uh, everybody is sort of, they're in this, this, uh, orbit, I guess this, this, and there's a gravitational pull that eventually draws them together. And one of the fun things that in the revision of the book, uh, because I didn't, I had no idea where the book was going. I, I, again, I did not know the ending. I didn't know anything about it. I was just writing characters. Um, so once I started revising, I had to think about pulling the pieces together and, uh, it was a lot of fun to go back and, and see in their orbits to, to look at different places where I could have them cross paths and the reader would realize that, oh, here, you know, th these two are crossing paths, but the characters themselves had no idea that they were. Right. That exactly. was really fun. I had a lot of fun with that. So now we're going to uh, introduce a couple of other idiots here. Uh, we got uh, <laughs> Colton and James. And Colton and James just look like, uh, you know, accident waiting to happen on a Friday night. You know, it's uh, tell us about these two characters. Uh, uh, early on in the book, they're, they're out shooting rats in a, I guess it's a, a city dump or something or some somewhere. And uh, that's what they're doing for fun one evening. And um, tell us who Colton is and who James is. C-Note, C-Note is name. <laughs> yeah, C-Note and James. Um, <laughs> James is, uh, James is, is sort of a train wreck uh, in, in every sense of the word, uh, but he's got a good heart. He means well. Yeah. Uh, he's, he has, he has some problems following through on things and um he, he he really wants to do well but he gets in his own way a lot uh so he's he's always game to try things but he's never interested in doing any kind of research he's just a let's jump in and see what happens kind of guy yeah he's kind of um, like that you know if you think about that uh, southern saying you know boys in groups do stupid things you know yeah. james would be right there oh you want to jump off that yeah i'll, I'll jump off no, that I, too you know <laughs> absolutely you know it's it, james is <laughs> here is the comment and i won't i won't you know divulge where this came from uh but in my mind here's james when the parents say if everybody else was jumping off a cliff would you do it too james's first response would i don't know how high is a cliff <laughs> You know, so <laughs> he, he's um, he needs some guidance in his life and he sort of knows it. But the, the fun thing about about James, well, the fun thing and I guess a, a softer side of it is he like Sally. He's kind of struggling to figure out his history because he's adopted um, and he doesn't feel like he fits in. So we learn without getting a lot of the backstory, we learn that his best friend is Colton and uh, Colton is um, he's mixed race and every stereotype for each one of the races that he is, every stereotype that people carry, Colton is not that he's the opposite of that stereotype. So um, I think at one point he, he calls himself captain enigma you know that, that he, he should if he were a superhero that's who he would be um so these two have a certain misfit quality um just naturally innately in in who they are so they're drawn together 
And Colton uh, C-Note seems to be <laughs> the voice of reason, I guess, right, right, <laughs> for, yeah. for James, who kind of keeps him in line. Well, you say, you say that, though, but the voice of reason for two guys that are going to have this get-rich-quick <laughs> get scheme because, yeah. you know, James is now living in a motel, and it turns out the guy next door is growing marijuana in his room, and so they ask him for some seeds, and their their idea is – oh, let's go plant this outside where nobody can see it. You know, not anybody flying over, not anybody who might come by. Yeah. And uh, so that that kind of – and so the property they find to do it, you know, well, it's it's that same property, right? So, right. Uh, but this little scene you're going to read is real short. Uh, this is after uh, they've been shooting and somehow or other James shoots himself in a foot but doesn't think it's worth driving to the hospital for because – you know, he's seen worse, right? Yeah. And, and, and yeah. now, but it's starting to look different. So uh, the foot is anyway. So Colt, this is where Colton, I think, is examining uh, James's foot. Yeah, James is a little concerned. Colton leaned down for a closer look at the top of James's foot. Let me see the bottom. It itches like a bitch. James leaned down, grabbed his pant leg, then raised his leg, which caused him to tip over and fall back on the bed. A hot pain stabbed from his instep past his ankle until it faded near his calf. Could be itching because it's healing. Could be because it's infected. Colton cupped James's right heel and lifted, inspected, then lowered it and gripped James's leg just above the ankle. Once he had him, he poured a stream of Bud Light across the wound. James screamed and jerked his foot away. Damn it, C-Note, What the hell did you do that for? Alcohol's good for infection. So it is infected. Shit, I knew it. I don't know. It looks nasty, but you got ugly feet to start with. Makes it hard to tell. What if I get gangrene? You'll have to see a doctor then, unless you want me to cut it off. I'll do it for you, but that's the sort of thing you ought to leave to a professional. Now, let's start with some Neosporin. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just seeing these two guys. So it is infected. Alcohol, Bud, bud Light, you know. <laughs> We're going to cut it off. I'll do it. I'll do it for you. <laughs> Uh, yeah, they're, <laughs> they, they, they're the ones that, you know, right away that they're not going to be the winners. And at the end, of <laughs> you just don't know what's going to happen to them because, uh, they're, they're liable to get in trouble. Well, look, we're going to, uh, listeners, we're going to take a short break here. Not long. Um, and when we come back, we're going to, we're going to meet one of the characters that I really liked. Her name is Ethel. Um, Ethel is, she sort of lives out in the country near this property we've been talking about. We're going to do the writing life segment. And then we've got uh, one final read involving uh, James and Colton. And uh, so, hey, stay with us and find out uh, what other things these uh, cast as any characters get into in Mason County, which is, uh, you know, don't tell anybody, but it's right next door to, uh, to Mecklenburg County. Hey, listeners, I'd like to share some information with you about uh, four organizations that are important players in our literary community. And uh, they're also supporters of the podcast. Uh, Spark Publications, Charlotte Lit, Charlotte Writers Club, and North Carolina Writers Network. Spark Publications is one of our early supporters, and they have been sending me some uh, wonderful authors uh, with some well-designed books. They are an award-winning independent publishing firm that helps authors bring their work to life. They work strategically with their authors to help them complete their manuscripts, design their covers and books uh, for marketability, register their ISBNs and Library of Congress numbers, proofread, manage the print options, market, and much more. To find out more about how you can publish a nonfiction or art book with the support of an experienced team, check out sparkpublications.com. Charlotte Lit, otherwise known as Charlotte Center for Literary Arts, is an organization in which I'm a member. It's a nonprofit art center whose mission is to celebrate the literary arts by educating and engaging writers and readers through classes, conversations, and community. Uh, I really enjoy participating in those classes. Uh, they see themselves, and I do too, as a valued and vital part of the Charlotte arts community, and they've become a premier creative writing center for the region. You can find out more about them and how to participate at charlottelit.org. For 98 years, the Charlotte Writers Club has continued to offer a supportive writing environment in the greater Charlotte community. Uh, I was a board member of that uh, organization for a few years recently. Uh, really enjoyed uh, participating that way and also in their regular meetings, their contests, and their community organizations. They offer a monthly newsletter, uh, monthly meetings, and speakers. Yeah, I was speaker chairman too. Uh, they do critique groups, open mics, and uh, they offer writing workshops and writing contests. You can find out more about uh, Charlotte Writers Club at uh, charlottewritersclub.org. 
I'm also a member of the North Carolina Riders Network. Uh, they offer six annual competitions, three annual conferences, and I think I've attended uh, all three of those. Many online classes uh, and critiquing and editing services uh, for their members. They serve over 1,400 members in North Carolina and beyond uh, in all genres and all levels of experience uh, with all manner of publishing credits. To find out more about the North Carolina Writers Network, uh, check out ncwriters.org. As a writer and a reader, I have benefited from participating in all three of these writing organizations, Charlotte Writers Club, Charlotte Lit, and North Carolina Writers Network. It's been a great experience for me. I've also enjoyed collaborating with Spark Publications, meeting and uh, interviewing their authors and looking at their fine work. If you'd like to check out uh, what each of these uh, supporters has to offer, uh, go to our show notes, uh, scroll to the bottom, and you'll find information about each one, uh, links, and also a promo code. Hey, listeners, uh, I'm back with Kevin Winchester. He's the author of Sunflower Dog Dancing the Flathead Shuffle, and uh, we've been having a lot of fun talking about the uh, characters in this book and uh you know, what they're getting themselves into and working toward, uh, you know, sort of a mystery on this plot of land and how it's all going to come together and who's going to end up on top. And, um, you know, I, I guess, Kevin, one of the characters that kind of stands firm and maybe stands in the way of a lot, all of these other characters is a woman named Ethel Combe. She's, uh, she's up there in age, uh, but also an attitude maybe. Yeah, she's, she's, um, She's a little crusty, I think is a good way to describe her. Uh she's 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 not really angry with the world, but she's not really gonna take a lot off of the world anymore. Yeah, and you got this uh scene, uh it starts in the chapter The Backyard, which you're gonna read. Uh let's read that and then we'll talk about her a little bit more. <laughs> all right. Ethel Combs was tired. Tired of all the bickering about national health care. Tired of politicians in general. Tired of all the idiots in the world. She was tired of matching underwear on ankle hose, blue-haired perms, cholesterol, high blood pressure, high sugar, TV preachers, young doctors, Vanna White, but she still watched Wheel of Fortune every night, and tired of people in general. She wasn't tired of being old. That she enjoyed. Age provided certain freedoms, and after 82 years, she exercised those freedoms with abandon. She smoked a pack of pell-mells every day, dipped two bros peach snuff, and swore like a shade tree mechanic. She liked to rum and coke while watching Wheel. Ethel had an opinion on everything and happily shared it when opportunity presented itself. They took her license away for her 80th birthday, but every Tuesday night, bingo night, her green 71 Dodge Dart occupied the handicapped spot at the VFW. Thursday included a trip to the liquor store, food line for groceries, and Polly's Beauty Salon. Other days, the post office, drugstore, doctor's appointments, the funeral home, and the occasional Sunday afternoon leisure drive. Her kids, two boys and a girl, never tried to intervene. All three had secretly resented her since grade school for the same reason, their names, but didn't dare confront her about it. It started with Niall, the oldest, who everybody now called Niles. Ethel then named her daughter Mississippi, and everyone eventually called her Missy. Unable and unwilling to change the theme, she hung Thames on the baby boy, but he preferred Tim. They never phoned and only visited at Christmas, which suited Ethel just fine. Even before they moved away, Missy and Niall had gotten sophisticated, called their own mother. What was it Missy said? Quaint. That was it. Simple, Niall echoed. Thames was even worse. The same attitude as his siblings, but he still lived across the county. Fine. They'd all grown too big for their britches as far as Ethel was concerned. Let them stay away. Tim's daughter, Brittany, stopped in frequently, though. Ethel liked her granddaughter well enough, but had her suspicions about the boy she sometimes brought with her. Other than Brittany, no other company ever knocked on her door. That afternoon, when Ethel heard the rap on her front door, she snuffed out her cigarette and took her thirty-eight revolver from the table in the hallway and snapped open the cylinder. Satisfied that a round filled each chamber, she whipped it closed, slipped it inside her apron pocket, and headed to the foyer, where she peeked out the window. The man was not bad-looking, fifty-ish and tan had a nice chin. He didn't have that mealy, desperate look of the Jesus freaks who knocked several times before giving up, leaving a pamphlet stuck in the door jam, telling her she was going to hell and the only avenue to avoid it would be coming to their church and asking Jesus himself for forgiveness or mail a donation in the enclosed envelope. Who the hell are you? She yelled through the door. Salvador Henson, ma'am. Folks call me Sally. I'd like to talk with you a minute. I already got one of whatever you're selling. And if I ain't, I don't need one. 
Got no worries about my soul or eternal damnation, and I don't give two turkey shits for whatever cause you're collecting for. Now get off my damn porch, Salvador Henson. It's nothing like that, ma'am. I'm looking for some information, that's all. It'll only take a minute if you'll just open the door. You some kind of pervert serial killer? I seen the likes of you on that TV show. No, ma'am, I live in Mason. Lived here all my life. I'm trying to find out who owns the land behind your house. I used to know a Henson. Who's your mama and daddy? Ruth and Montford, ma'am, but my daddy went by Juice. Juice Henson used to run Moonshine? That's him. Ethel opened the door but kept one hand in her apron pocket on the pistol just in case. Your daddy was a conniving bastard, but he always had good shine, nice and clean. Can I come in? Hell no, but I might come out. You sure you ain't some kind of sicko what likes to rape old women? I ain't got no issue with the sex part, but I don't like it rough. Ethel laughed and stepped onto the porch. <laughs> so you, you can't always tell whether Ethel is uh, being serious or not being serious or just, just being ornery. But, uh, you know, it took it took basically a family connection. And that, you know, that sometimes works in the South, right? If, yeah. you know, if, if you've got the, the connection, if I know your, your kin, then, uh, okay, come on up on the porch and we'll, we'll talk a little bit. Uh, and, uh, since he ran good shine, that was good, but I love this. Uh, <laughs> I, I really didn't, you know, I haven't read the book. I didn't really connect the, her, her, her affinity for rivers. You know, you had Niles, <laughs> Mississippi and think, although you wouldn't think that Ethel would be naming somebody after, you know, something that ran through uh, England, but, uh, yeah. you know, you know, she had a sense of humor for sure. Um, so Ethel is on this property. She's, uh, she meets Salvador. Her suspicions are raised. Uh, Sally's out trying to figure out, uh, you know, something about the property because by now he's gotten some information that maybe Bill was trying to do something with the property. He doesn't know if it's valuable or not, but he's just kind of poking around and, uh, that's how they meet. And the, the, the fun thing about her is her attitude continues to carry throughout this book. <laughs> I love the scene at the bank where she goes in and, you know, this is a typical, you know, I guess view of how people of her age perhaps uh, would have thought about banks. Cause she goes in and she says, Hey, I came to check on my money. Thinking of spending some of it. Your money's fine. Ethel. Can I see it? My money. <laughs> you never get tired of that one. Do you? you know how it works. We have your money. It's just not in cash. Not all of it. You tell me that every time, but I, I, I tell you what, I'd like to see it. <laughs> and she's just like, <laughs> it's like, you know, okay, let me see my money. I want to see my money because she's got a lot of money. Right. And uh, yeah. 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 Uh, but she's uh, one of those that doesn't spend it. She just has it. Yeah. Yeah. And she's had it for a while. That's that, you know, and that's the thing, you know, let's dust it off. <laughs> she just lets it sit there. Maybe that's why she doesn't give two turkey shits for whatever he's <laughs> selling because she's got whatever she needs. Uh, Absolutely. That, that's fun. Um, okay, well, let's do this. Let's talk writing life just a little bit. Um, okay. You uh, First of all, about the process of writing this book, you've already told us you don't do an outline, uh, which means that after you go through this process of writing all these characters, you then got to go back and kind of figure out how the threads go together. Does that? Do you sometimes find that that makes the process, uh, I don't know, uh, a little <laughs> bit more cumbersome than perhaps if you kind of knew where you were going to begin with? It's much more cumbersome. Um, and it, it, it comes from, I started out, I, I guess, writing short stories. I was drawn to short stories. Um, and it, it's not so bad in a short story. You write a shorter piece and then you step back and say, okay, I've got, you know, 2000 words here or 5,000 words and look, what's the real story. So it's a relatively easy process. Uh, when it's a novel, it becomes a different beast altogether um, to to really find that thread. Uh, and I hate writing as far as the creative process, but I really like the revision process. I like to get in there and sort of play around and, and see what, what I can do with a piece once I get it. Um, that's, interesting. So that, that's, that's interesting, uh, Kevin, because as I'm thinking about your process, <clears throat> I'm thinking – it sounds like you really enjoy that first sort of creative phase where you're just writing the characters and putting it down and that the revisionist phase would be a part that you'd go, your analytical brain would go, wait a minute. Oh my gosh, now I got to go back and <laughs> fix this. But you actually, I, I hear, I'm hearing you say you enjoy both parts of it. I, I do. Um, when I say I hate the, the creation part, I hate starting. 
but once I get the character, I like to just run with a character. So I, I do enjoy that part of it. Um, but I'm forever, I'll, I'll get an idea and I think it's a good idea. And then two paragraphs or, or, or two pages later, it's just, oh, this is nothing. So uh, uh, I have a lot of false starts and I know that about my writing. And that's why I hate starting because I'm like, oh, I don't know if this is going to go anywhere. Yeah. Um, but, but then, um, you know, to get all the pieces to kind of come back to it again, that's when the, the literary guy sort of steps in and says, Oh, okay, let's see what's happening here. Let's see what we can pull out of this and build on. Um, <laughs> a funny story about the process and, in learning to write and I, I'm still learning to write. I think all writers are, uh, short story collection came out, uh, 2009 and i was uh somewhere in the eastern part of the state um doing a reading for uh um, um a library and you can tell when you do these things live that that you can see that somebody's really interested and as soon as you open it up for questions they've got one and they want to be first so i'd read a couple of different pieces i'd i'd you know give him my little presentation there's this this sweet little lady sitting on the front row i'll never forget it says was there are there any questions and she's just leaning forward and she says yes she says there's this theme of fire that's present in almost every one of your short stories was this intentional and as she's saying this i'm thinking she's read the wrong book this this is she's she's in the wrong place you know she's <laughs> off her meds there is no theme of this so i kind of stumbled through my answer but it bothered me and then i'm sitting in the parking lot before i drive home and i'm flipping through the pages and i'm like damn she's right <laughs> you know it's in there so uh learning moment for me so i like to go back and see all right here are the things that my subconscious put in here uh, when I was just sort of free writing and and something in my brain dropped these pieces into the story. Now I've got to come out and polish those in time together. So that's the fun part. Well, that's interesting that you say that because, you know, when I've talked to authors about uh, theme uh, of a book and, and when I talk to publicists about marketing, they're all about trying to figure out, okay, what's the theme of this book? What's the underlying theme? You know, yeah, plot's plot, but, you know, what are you trying to do with the, yeah. the book? It's interesting to me because... Uh, the first time somebody asked me that with my first book, I was like, wait a minute, I, really, I, was, I, was writing, I was writing a story, I was writing characters, and and you look back yeah. and you go, oh, yeah, I think I, yeah, <laughs> it's about believing in things you can't see, feel, and touch. Yeah, okay, I get it now. Yeah, but, but you're not necessarily prepared to talk yeah. about that, right? Because as you said, it's your subconscious at work sometimes, right? Yeah, exactly. The the things that, um, I, I'm a big believer in, in the Flannery O'Connor statement or axiom that we write to figure out what it is that we think and how we feel about things. Uh, so my fiction follows that path. I usually have something thematically. I have something that I want to work out and figure out. Um, but as soon as I start writing, that tends to go away so that I'm not thinking, Oh, here's the theme I've got to come back to. Like you say, it, it, it might start the process, but then it disappears. And I'm just lost in characters and, and letting them tell the story. Uh, it's almost like I'm just sort of taking notes or channeling them. Um, and then that theme pops back up at the end. It's like, ah, here are the little pieces that because I started with this, this little kernel, here are the pieces that my subconscious drops in. And now I've got to figure out a way to tie them together and highlight that. Mm. So it's part of the process, uh, Kevin, when and where, did you write this book and uh, how long did it take you? Uh, it, <laughs> it took a long time. Yeah. Um, it started with actually a short story uh, attempt in probably around 2009, 2010. And it was uh, Livingston. I had a short story with Livingston. I had this character. And what happened with him was he went out, he was a creature of habit. He went out one morning to get the newspaper and something made him go across the street and steal his neighbor's newspaper. And then once he did that, he opened the two up and he realized there were two different versions of the newspaper, uh, different headlines, different stories. So he unraveled. Well, I wrote this story and it, it was 21 pages long uh, after I'd finished the revisions. And I started sending it around and everybody was saying the same thing. This is 20 pages of a great story, but the ending's wrong. Um, so I finally abandoned that and sort of put it to the side. 
And then a couple of years later, moved on to other things. And then a couple of years after that, this was around 2014, I was on the motorcycle coming back from school. And they were doing some construction on a highway, uh, the, the sort of one of the main arteries through downtown Monroe, which is what I took to get home. And it was hot and I knew they were doing construction. And if you got caught where they were stopping uh, your lane of traffic, you typically sat there for about 10 or 15 minutes. So I knew what was happening. Well, when you're on the motorcycle in the summertime, I pulled over to the side under the shade. I didn't want to sit in the sun. So I'm sitting there and it turns out that I'm right beside uh, uh, a funeral home. And the funeral home is sort of uphill. The parking lot is above me. And I noticed I switched the bike off um, because it was hot and I hear yelling. So I sort of stand up and I look up on the hill and there are these two ample women having a fist fight in the parking lot and the ushers and everybody else are trying to pull them apart. So I'm sitting there watching this and I'm like, oh, there's a story in this. You know, so I go home and I immediately started writing. Yeah, Um, that's amazing because that's that's your opening scene, right? That's your inside. yeah, Yeah. 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 Uh, and, and as I worked on it, the pieces sort of fell in and these other characters kept coming up and I'm like, well, Hey, you know, this guy would fit with the rest of the characters. So I actually started 2009 with that piece with Livingston. Uh, but I really started proper around 2013, 2014. And it took me about a year, um, to write the first draft and then, uh, uh, maybe another year or so working with beta readers and doing the revisions. Well, I was going to ask you where you found your characters, but it sounds like you find them just uh, driving around in your Harley. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, the the fear is always that somebody will pick up one of my books or a short story and say, hey, this sounds like me. Uh, it's not happened yet. I actually had a short story that was based on one very specific person, and, and I didn't I, I knew that I had not disguised it very well. And that particular person read part of the short story and said, this guy's an idiot. And I'm like, yep, yeah, <laughs> he is. Um, so, so one part of my question, did you write, uh, do you write in the same place every time or do you write anywhere? And uh, do you write morning, night? What's your routine? It, it sort of changes. Um, typically, I have a small office uh, at home. And usually in the summers, that's where I write there. Uh, right early in the morning is usually the best time. That's why all of this was written early in the morning and I revise. I tend to do my revision work in the evenings for some reason. Um, either that or I'll, uh, uh, during the school year, I'll usually go into the office earlier. I can get into my building, my office uh, early. So I usually go in and I'll write for an hour or two there just so I don't have the distractions of home and uh, sort of ease into the day. Uh, uh, but it's usually, usually my creative stuff is early in the morning and I tend to revise in the afternoon, evenings. All right, Kevin. So like all authors, um, I'd say all, mostly authors will thank the team in their work somewhere, somehow, you know, for putting this together. And it got me to thinking, uh, because I was looking at your acknowledgments and you were thanking your team as well for helping you, you know, cross the finish line. And in many ways, writing is, uh, you know, it's it's, it's a lonely sport, you know, it's an individual sport, but I'm just wondering about this. What are your thoughts about uh, this idea that it very much takes a team to bring a book into the world? It's, it's a fascinating topic really. Um, because writing just the act of writing itself is so solitary. Um, and it's hard. I mean, you, you, there's, there's nobody to say you need to go write today. You know, there's no real deadlines when you're writing fiction, that sort of thing. Uh, so you have to, you you have to lie to yourself and say, all right, there is this is going to be all right. I need to go do this. I have to do this. Uh, but then I always tell my students this. Most writers tend to to want to hold back and we do this solitary thing, but then we need validation. Uh, so we need somebody to read our work and say, yes, what you are doing does have value. Um, but then I tell my students, I'm like, all right, if you really want to write fiction, you need to let mom or dad, uh, that's my students, go let your mom read this and she'll tell you that it's beautiful and it's great and everything else, because that's her job. She has to say that, but then you need to go find some people that are going to be honest with you and you need to find somebody that you can trust, um, not to tell you what you want to hear, but to tell you what the work needs uh, in order to be better, to make it as good as it can be. 
And that's when the people come in. I, I have um, I, I have a couple of of beta readers, people that read. I have two in particular. Uh, I mentioned Amy Odom. The other one's Claudine Garrett, uh, and they read every word I write. <laughs> Bless them. I mean, because they've read a lot of stuff that's awful, uh, but they read everything I write, and they're honest with me. Uh, so that's where it starts. And then I kind of have other beta readers that I'll move out from after those two rip it apart and tell me you know, how awful it is and how to fix it. Uh, I go back and go through that revision process. And then I have uh, the next circle of beta readers that I just want some reader input. Um, And then editors, uh, you know, editors, it's a love hate relationship, you know, and, and you have to trust, you have to trust that the editor um, for the work, the final editor has the best interest of the work in process. And you have to also understand which, uh, and this is a hard thing that I continually have to relearn. And I think all writers have to relearn this, uh, every time a piece goes out, um, you have to learn what pieces you want to fight for and what pieces you need to say, okay, yeah, the editor is right. Um, and, and you can't fight for a piece based on ego, uh, you know, as Faulkner said, you got to kill your darlings. You have yeah. to fight for a piece based on what makes it better. And it does. It takes all of that to make something uh, 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 as good as it can be. All right. So, Kevin, when you're writing um, and you write these character-driven uh, stories and books, uh, what emotions are you hoping to tap into sort of generally? And what were you hoping for with uh, with this particular book? That's a good question. With with these, you know, since it is character-driven, um, I, I really wanted the reader, I hope the reader sees these characters as, um, there's primarily eight of them that we see a lot. And I hope they see each of them as, as fully realized characters as people. And the thing that I want the emotion, there's, there's highs with each character and there are lows with each character. And I think each character has doubts and has those sort of quiet reflective moments. Um, where they're not certain, they're not sure of themselves and where, where they doubt their everything. They doubt their, their decisions, their past, their future. Um, and it, it unnerves them to a degree, but they persevere. They, they, you, you have to push past that. Um, so I think really when you look at the book, um, as a whole at the end, what I hope people take away from the characters it is that idea of hope and perseverance that, um, <laughs> you know, the, the, the highs are never as high as we think they are. And the lows are never as low as they think they are, that, that there's, there's that, that middle path somewhere in between. And, um, that the reader through one of these characters, I, I hope that most readers will identify with at least one of them and, and, uh, get some reassurance, you know, because life's hard. It's 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 That's just it. hard. So before we get to the last read, uh, I sometimes ask this question of writers: uh, if you could, uh, if you could tell your younger writing self something that you'd learned in your experience, uh, what would it be? Ah, oh, that's a great question. Um, my younger self would be to t- to trust what. I was doing, I, I, I came to this late, um, but I have always been a writer and it took me a long time to get the courage up to, to actually start submitting work. Um, I, I should have done that much earlier and it comes from like these characters ha- just doubting, you know, not trusting the the process and not trusting what I was doing. Uh, so, so to go back and I would say that to other writers as well, you, you have to, you have to put yourself out there. You, 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 there's something telling you to write. Um, there's no amount of, of workshops in graduate school or whatever you want to do in MFA. Uh, no, no amount of that can replace just writing and submitting and, and learning from work. You know, uh, rejections are the best thing that happened to me. So, so if I, my younger self, <laughs> don't fear rejection. It's hey. a good thing. That's good. When was the first time you felt like you could call yourself a writer? I'll let you know when it happens. <laughs> it's, uh, uh, I'd say I'd say you are now. I mean, you got a book, you got stories published. Yeah, you're there. Uh, I mean, well, thanks. I, I still, but it's still the the. 
you know, it's like you mentioned in the introduction, you mentioned the, the, the Thomas Wolf uh, award. I wrote that short story. And after I wrote that short story, I knew that it was a good story. And then I run the award. I won the award. And since then I've, and I've published other short stories, but I constantly ask myself and, and I doubt it. I, I, how did I do that? I don't think I'll ever be able to produce that again. Um, I finished this book and and it's, you know, going to publication. I finished the, the last edits and I was asking myself that as I'm working on the new process, it's like, I don't know how I did that, but yes, I'm holding it in my hands. So obviously I did. Uh, and I just dive into the next one and assume that I'll figure it out. <laughs> so, uh, so yeah, it's all, I'm always learning. You're just expressing the same uh, self doubts uh, that, most creatives have and which uh, yeah. they talk about in creative books, what Julia Cameron talks about, sure. what, uh, what uh, Elizabeth uh, talks about in Big Magic. You know, just it, yeah. it, it's one of those things that, uh, you know, kind of interferes with the process. All right. So we got time for <clears throat> one last uh, read here. It's uh, I think we're back to uh, Ethel um, and uh, she's just uh I think James and Colton are slipping away from the property and, uh, or, or, or hit us somewhere. And, uh, you're going to pick it up there and, uh, let's, let's, let's read to the end, to the end of this scene here. Sure. James turned to leave. Colton had slipped away when Brittany's grandmother started talking and now waited in the truck engine running. James paused before climbing in the passenger side. I'll see you tomorrow for Sunday dinner. He yelled, he closed the door. Ethel watched the truck turn around in her side yard and start down the drive. Sunday dinner. You'll be damn lucky if I don't poison your sorry ass, she mumbled to the taillights. Nap time, but her mind was troubled and she didn't think she'd go to sleep. She sat in the rocker and stared out the window. Something was up with that boy. The color one seemed nice enough, but not James. Brittany could do better. That girl had a good head on her shoulders. Ethel wished she wouldn't watch all those trashy reality TV shows, though. She tried to get her interested in Wheel of Fortune, but Brittany had said it was boring. Ethel had to admit there wasn't much to choose from when it came to television these days. If it weren't a fake reality program, it was one of those crime shows, and they were just gruesome. Or the doctor and hospital dramas. Those were even worse. Ethel finally stopped looking at those programs. Whatever symptoms the TV patients had, she'd lie awake that night trying to determine if she had the same, which usually meant she had to fix one more rum and coke to help her fall asleep. At least Brittany didn't like those shows either, which was a good thing. But there was something more than James on her mind. It wasn't so much that he was back there in the woods, even though she knew his reasons were no good. Ethel sat and rocked, rocked and sat, rolling things around in her head. That land seemed to be drawing a lot of attention lately. Sure, Britt walked back there to take her pictures, but she'd done that for years. But now, James and that friend of his started going back there, all of a sudden, too. It started when the man, the heavy woman, came strolling up from out of the trees. They weren't a bit more lost than she was, and I've been living here since we built this house in 53, she thought. And Salvador Henson appearing out of the blue like he did, asking questions about the property. That fancy-talking lady professor from the college. Ethel didn't doubt it would only be a matter of time before she came back and started traipsing around. Something was going on, and it all circled around that piece of dirt behind her house. Fine, she decided. Ethel Combs didn't tell the DMV where they could stick their eye exam without reason. There wasn't a thing wrong with her vision. She could see. And Ethel Combs hadn't made it this far, didn't raise three ungrateful kids on her own without being able to figure out a thing or two along the way. She'd figure this out, too. Yes, the picture was fuzzy, but coming into focus. She'd soon have it framed and hung. <laughs> she she, did, she didn't raise three ungrateful kids on her own without being able to figure <laughs> out a thing or two. <laughs> That's great. Yeah, so Ethel's going to... Uh, kind of drive this uh, toward a conclusion here and uh listeners you're gonna have to get the book find out you know what happens on this uh, piece of property and how how it all comes together for all these uh all these characters uh kevin um this has been great uh, there's going to be information listeners in the show notes about uh, kevin about his book uh links uh some photos uh and uh you'll even get to see that uh, beer that kevin sports i think so, uh, <laughs> how long you had that kevin uh, most of my adult life in some form or another, okay. uh, I finally went with a full beard, uh, a little over a year. Yeah. Um, I started it this is last summer, I guess. So yeah, it's been a, been a little while. I come from a long line of, of, uh, of, of full beard growers. So, well, I've got a beard too, but mine doesn't grow all the way down to my, <laughs> to my chin, you know, my chest like yours does. Uh, so 
Yeah, uh, right, well, right. the more the the more my hair on top of my head falls out, the thicker and longer my beard gets. So I guess it's a trade off. Right, that's great. Well, Kevin, thanks so much uh, for being on Charlotte Rear's podcast. Thanks for having me. It's really been a pleasure. It's been a lot of fun, Landis. Well, that's it for today. Another fine author giving voice to their written words. Next Tuesday, we'll have another in-depth episode with readings and conversations about the written word and the writing life of a local or regional author. But before then, be on the lookout for another Under the Covers episode where we do much the same thing we do here, but quicker and sometimes away from the studio. Because there are just too many good authors. And not enough time. If you like what we're doing, please consider leaving a short written review on Apple Podcasts or the podcast platform of your choice. Because when you do, our authors' voices travel much farther and wider in podcast land. And if you're inclined to help us help authors give voice to the written words, and you'd like some member-only content cultivated by our authors and me as our thanks, please consider becoming a member supporter. You can find out how to become a member supporter and more about today's show and all previous episodes at charlottereaderspodcast.com. And you can keep up with news about the show by joining our email list and engaging with us on social media. We promise not to spam you because, well, that takes too much time. And if you do join our email list, we'll give you a free ebook written by me. Thank you for listening. We really appreciate it. Until next week. I'm Landis Wade for Charlotte Readers Podcast. Charlotte Readers Podcast is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network, powered by Ortho Carolina. Now offering video visits so you can take control of your orthopedic care from the comfort of your home. Schedule online at orthocarolina.com. Ortho Carolina, you improved.